Welcome to the Friday edition of Unexpected Points. We have a review of Cowboy Saints Thursday Night Football. We have a little discussion on a very interesting article that came out here about the run, how coaches feel about it, some players weigh in. I wrap up the whole story and give you some insights on how we can think about this thing going forward. And lastly, we get to the week 13 best bets of the week. A little bit of a light week, but I have some good ones for you. Let's get to it. Right, everybody the Friday edition Thursday night football wasn't great wasn't fantastic um but there's a surprising amount of things to talk about from a game management slash penalty perspective there was a big your normal island game penalty controversy that per usual I don't know if it's my contrarian nature if it's my just being a pedantic about these things, but I'm going to defend the shield as I, as I like to do. Uh, well, not defend the shield, but defend the stripes, defend the, defend the zebras here. And a lot of this, I do think comes down to asking referees to do things that are impossible. And then we get mad at them afterwards where, you know, hate the, you know, they say, don't hate the player, hate the game. It's kind of like that. So don't hate the refs, hate the rules. Let's get to, though, the, the big scores here. And again, for those who are uninitiated, I have my adjusted score, which factors more into success rates as opposed to some of the outlier big plays here. And there were a lot of outlier big plays here, a lot. Uh, big plays offensively for both teams, long touchdowns, and then also a lot of turnovers. So it downweights those a bit. It you know downweights special teams factors. It tries to make an adjustment for turnover-worthy plays versus how many turnovers there actually are, because very often there are turnovers that shouldn't have been a turnover-worthy play and vice versa. And then, of course, factoring in drops and other analytical measures that we have here, stats that we're tracking that you won't get anywhere else. So the, the top headline information here for Cowboys Saints, we have a six and a half point line going into this. It was four and a half. For the Cowboys, for most of the week, the announcement with Kamara being out, both tackles being out again, Taysom Hill starting, I don't know how much of a factor that was. I don't think that really moved things. I think he was probably seen as a basically a lateral move versus Trevor Simeon. Based upon the results last night, maybe he was a, a downgrade versus Trevor Simeon. That moved it from four and a half to six and a half, which is significant. You know, you're getting over the six, which is a which is a somewhat key number. It's not as key as three or seven, but it gets over the six, all the way over the six for a half point above it also. So that, that was some significant of a move that we saw before the game. The actual score, 27-17, Dallas Cowboys. My adjusted score, and I was a little bit surprised by this because the Saints were so god-awful. But it was 23-19, so a little bit more narrow, only four points. Now, could you say, oh, we should have, uh, the Saints should have covered in this one. I don't know about that one. Because to me, it was a little bit embarrassing for Dallas that this game was even as close as it was. And I do think the fact that Dallas also was reliant upon a pick six, in this case, uh, you could call it a thick six. That's the new terminology here, which I embrace for talking about the the big men up front getting a touchdown there for that. So they had a they had the, the thick six, 
They also had an extremely long run from Tony Pollard. Those are things that are just purely not going to be sustainable on a week-by-week basis. So if you figure that, you know, more than half of their points were off of those weird sort of plays. So that's why Dallas's score is a little bit lower here at 23 as opposed to 27. And the Saints are a little bit higher. And I was surprised to see this, that the underlying rates here, the underlying success rates, and again, we consider a play successful if it has a positive expected points added. Expected points added is our preferred metric. It normalizes every play based upon down, distance, time remaining, field position, all that sort of stuff to figure out how many points you should expect that team to score or to give up based upon that steady state, that static state, the play is run, you recalculate the points, and then you realize how many points were added on a particular play. And that's the best way to get a measure that you can compare across rather than saying, oh, Joe, you know, uh, the Josh Allen had 200 yards passing and 100 yards rushing and one rushing touchdown in this. And then so-and-so had 400 yards passing. Like, how do you compare those two things? Well, this really looks at the actual impact of the plays people were involved in. So to look at from the offensive perspective, the big offensive perspective for these two teams, 37% success rate for the Saints, only 30% for the Cowboys. 30% is a very, very low number. That's a fourth percentile success rate for the Cowboys. Very, very bad. And it was really rushing that was the problem. They could not run the ball. They had a fourth percentile success rate running the ball. And that was a big factor there, which held them down. Now, the Saints, 37% is still weak. But I was surprised that it was better. And of course, they were just crushed by the four interceptions, including the pick six from um, from our man Taysom Hill. So the dropback efficiency, both teams are pretty bad running it. The dropback efficiency, though, interestingly, was a 13th percentile in EPA per dropback for the Saints, 17th percentile for the Cowboys. So again, two bad, bad performances. And if you're walking away with this with a victory for the Cowboys, you should feel pretty lucky that you got this. And I don't think it was an encouraging performance, especially because on the injury front, you know, Mari Cooper was only playing situationally, only playing on third downs. But still, he was out there. CeeDee Lamb was out there. Uh, Tyron Smith was out there. They were pretty complete as far as the team is concerned, much more complete than the Saints, yet they did not run away with this one despite god-awful quarterback play from Taysom Hill. So what, what happened here for the Cowboys? And the biggest number for them, and this is going to be my number of the game, and that is 12 is my number of the game. And 12 represents the failures, the number of times that the Cowboys failed on third or fourth down in this game. They were two for 13 on third down and 0 for 1 on fourth down. That explains a lot of the negativity in the dropback pass game because Dak, if you only look at first and second down, if you only look at those early downs, Dak had positive EPA per play. But because his late downs were so bad, it brought his number for EPA per play, expected points added per play, into the negative, pretty significantly into the negative. So it was really those third downs that they were just not able to convert. Is that a systemic issue? I don't think so. I think the Cowboys are probably a good conversion team, but it could have been more related to the Saints, who have been a little bit better than your average team holding others down on late downs, maybe because they can bring pressure and man up more in those circumstances. Again, when you play a defense that is dialing up the risk, is willing to, you know, 
rely upon man coverage and can potentially get burnt, but then when things go well for them, things go really well for them. And that seemed to be the case here for the Saints in this game. So again, Dak was bad overall, but better on early downs, which is more sustainable going forward. So, you know, altogether, bad performance, but not maybe as horrible as some of the headline numbers here. And, you know, Dak is struggling a little bit, which I think is interesting if you look at the evolution of the perception on Dak Prescott. It's not that long ago that when his rookie contract was over, no fifth-year option for Dak Prescott because he was a fourth-round pick. He was not even close to a first-round pick. When that happened and his contract was up, there was a lot of debate about not only how much money should he get, but is there a possibility the Cowboys let him walk? At that point in time, Dak was not universally recognized as a top 10 quarterback as he is now. At that time, there were questions how much of the offensive line, the heavy running game played into Dak's success and the weapons that he had around him, whether you could bring someone else in into a similar circumstance. The arc of Dak's career was amazing, amazing, amazing rookie season. Offensive rookie of the year. I think he even received MVP votes that season, 12-4 and as a rookie. Some of the best efficiency numbers that we've seen since PFF has been tracking them since 2006. Dak was at the highest number. Very big step back in 2017. A lot of struggles in 2017. Tyron Smith missed time. Dak struggled a ton as far as being able to convert third downs again, like he did last night. So that was a step back for him. He did a little bit better in 2018, a little bit better in 2019, but still, he never graded that high for us. He was never really a top 10 grading type of guy, even when his EPA per play, juiced by running efficiency on a low volume that he performed very well running the ball, was good, was always pretty good. So that that just, I just want to bring up that context because in the shortened season that he had last year where he was putting up tons of numbers, then he got the big contract and the Cowboys fell apart without him, which helped his reputation. And now early this season where you have all the quarterback gurus pointing to Dak as being one of the best out there in everything that he does, now he is starting to have a little bit of speed bumps. He's hitting some speed bumps this year. He is still seventh in his offensive grade here at PFF. So still strong, still one of the best numbers that we've seen from him in his career. Maybe the best number we've seen from him in his career. But he's all the way down now at 17th when it comes to EPA per play, which means he's really mediocre right there smack in the middle of the NFL as far as his efficiency is concerned. That will probably get better. He's probably better than that. But as far as the actual results that he's put up, 17th, and the Cowboys, who are now eight and four, I believe, eight and four, without this defense doing what they've been doing, especially the ball hawking, turnovers, creating points on the defensive side, without the defense playing this well, if the defense was struggling this year, the Cowboys might not even have a 500 record because they haven't, they've been running pretty well. Dak has been playing again pretty well, but not quite as good as you would have expected. So it would be 500 ish as opposed to eight and four. And I think there'd be a lot more discussions about Dak Prescott now and people defending him, rightfully defending him, for some fluky plays that have driven down his 
his efficiency, but in a way, uh, there may still be some questions out there. So where we think of Dak, he's definitely not the guy that you would think about passing on as far as re-signing, but he also may not be yet ensconced in the true elite of the elite of the NFL in quarterback play. Let's go to the other big theme here, and I'm going to focus on the Cowboys a lot as opposed to the Saints. The Saints are now 5-7. and seven. They don't know what they're doing at quarterback. They're not completely um, forked at this point, but maybe they are, so I'm not going to talk too much about them. So let's talk about the backfield because I think this came out a lot. Zeke was pretty bad. People talked about the knee injury bothering him, how big his load you know, children, cover your ears here, that he was going to have a uh, heavy load. He was going to be load. He was loaded up, according to Jerry Jones, going into this. He ended up splitting things pretty well with Pollard in this game. And in this particular game, the EPA per design run last night, Zeke was negative 0.35 and Pollard was positive 0.42. So both of those numbers are extremely low when it comes to Zeke and extremely high when it comes to Pollard. Now, from a success rate perspective, Pollard was only at a 14% success rate, and Zeke was at a 15% success rate. So they both were not getting it done from a success rate perspective. Those are bottom fifth percentile success rate type of numbers. But Pollard had the one huge run, and that really played into it more than anything else. That's what played into this number here. So you take that one run out, and I know you don't want to necessarily make these singular somewhat arbitrary adjustments to things. But if you take that one run out, they were both equally poor in this game, despite the fact that you could say Zeke didn't look like he had enough pop. And I think it's fair also to say that if the play that Pollard took for a huge rushing touchdown, if that play opened up to Zeke, he would not have been able, most likely in the condition that he was in, to have have taken that all the way. I mean, Pollard ends up with you know, 10 yards per carry, again, at a 14% success rate. And then Zeke ends up with 45 yards rushing on 13 carries. So that comes out to, in the traditional stats, um, 3.5 yards per carry. So that shows you how that one run, though, the one run that was 60-plus yards, really played into that. Uh, As far as receiving is concerned, I mean, C.D. Lamb continues to be amazing. Um, He had that one catch that ended up being classified as a run. So it was a 33-yard run play on top of 89 yards receiving, 11 targets, 7 receptions. He was the one guy that you could really rely on on that game and was excellent. Okay, getting forward from some, some game management and refereeing sort of stuff that this is why you come to this podcast. This is the stuff that I'm going to discuss, hopefully in an intelligent way, hopefully not trying to be too contrarian versus people out there, that is going to help understand things going forward in particular for you. And, you know, anyone who's interested in uh, knowing what's going on football-wise in these games. So let's talk about some of the game management stuff. There were, there's quite a bit of pushback at the end of the first half because the Cowboys ended the first half with two timeouts. And the clock essentially ran out on them, despite the fact that they had two timeouts. So, you know, people point to that a lot as a huge clock management, game management mistake. I'm of two minds when it comes to this. And my perception has been shifted a little bit by talking with people like my co-host for 
four or five different episodes earlier this year, uh, Ryan Paganetti, who worked as a as the analytics guy slash assistant linebackers coach, so he was on the coaching side of things for the Eagles during their um, their run through the Super Bowl and then all the way until when Peterson was let go this last year. So talking with Ryan, he said that goal number one for, for according to coaches in this situation and not saying this is right but it's at least interesting perspective goal number one for these guys in these perspectives is to not give the ball back to the other team that is really the most important thing so when we look at this and we say yeah, they they messed up by not having a real chance to score a touchdown there. At the same point in time, they did fulfill their goal of not giving the ball back to the other team. And it was really one play that made the huge difference there. If we go down to the end of the first half, there was an interesting decision. So the the, the play that was an interesting decision here was third and ten. From the New Orleans 44. Before that play, in order to make sure New Orleans was not going to get the ball back, they ran the clock all the way down from 118 left. There was 118 left before the second down play. And it was a short pass for no gain. So it was third and 10. So the clock is running. They let it run all the way down to 37 seconds. I thought at the time that was probably a little bit too far, but you can see if you have an incompletion and you leave, let's say, 45 seconds left, I think we underestimate how much time that gives your opponent to potentially score a field goal. They can really do that quite often, especially in that circumstance. You're probably going to have to punt if it goes into the end zone. They get the ball back at the 20. They have 45 seconds left. So I can see why running it all the way down as far as almost you could can be a good move in that circumstance. Now, they ended up converting, and I think they were also hurt by the fact that the perception of having the timeouts left, they were hurt by the fact that they continued to move the ball all the way down to the uh, seven-yard line before getting a penalty, which moved them back to the 17- and 16-yard line. But they were moving the ball and getting out of bounds most of the time on out pattern. So I think, if anything, what they could have done was they could have used the middle of the field a little bit more to use one of those timeouts if it would have helped them score the touchdown. But I do think there is logic into not giving the ball back to your opponent because, again, your downside is 0, 0. Your upside is plus 3, and then you limit your upside to a plus 7. If you run a little bit more quickly, you increase your upside to plus 7. You lower your upside, I would say, to everything else, to plus 3. And then, of course, you you give a possibility of a negative 3 or even a negative 7 in this circumstance. And you want to eliminate that from the table. Why I think the Cowboys may have done the right thing here is I think the additional thing you have to think about in these circumstances is where you are game-wise. Where you are win probability-wise, do you want to increase variance or do you want to lower variance? Making sure you're not going to give the ball back obviously decreases variance because you're making it much more narrow into plus three or zero being the two outcomes that are going to happen. If you leave more time, giving you more time for a touchdown, you also give your opponent more time to score, so you increase the variance greatly. At this point in time, when Dallas had the ball, right before that play where they ran all the time off of the clock, 
they were at an 84, 85% win probability. If you're at 84, 85% win probability, I think I'm okay with limiting your upside in that situation, limiting variance. And if you look, they finish the end of the half, they go through the end of the half, and at 88% win probability. So they juiced it up a little bit just getting those three points. Now, if they got the seven points, would they have gotten above 90% win probability? Probably. But 88 is pretty good. If you're making 88% win probability, your most likely outcome going into halftime, I think I'm okay limiting your upside there. So criticism of them in that situation, factoring in the current game state, the fact that you're a six and a half point favorite, the fact that you have a better team, the fact that you get the ball first in the second half, factoring in all those things, I'm okay with what they did there, even though generally I like teams to be a little bit more aggressive at the end of the half. The Cowboys weren't a great spot to be less, more conservative. And again, it's a general NFL thing to do that, according to people in the NFL. So that's the first thing, the, the game management thing. It's the end of the first half, the timeouts that are being used. The second thing, the more controversial thing, was the blind side block that happened in this game. I think 90... 8%, 99% of the confusion on this call is due to poor naming of this rule. I believe there was a actual blindside block rule prior to 2019 when they changed the, the rule. They updated, they expanded the definition of the rule. And the blindside block in that circumstance would make sense. You, you, you couldn't engage a player to the side if they didn't see you coming. Something like that. So you literally were blindsiding them. They did not see you coming. Now, the definition of blindside block has expanded since 2019. And if you watch these games now, players have become very hip to it. I see them all the time avoiding getting these calls in circumstances. And I'll, I'll describe how they do that. But the new definition of blind, remember, this is quote unquote blindside block. So when people are talking about this, and they're seeing what happened last night where you had, I believe, a tight end come over from one side of the line over to the other side of the line and then and then engage helmet first, helmet to helmet almost, helmet and hands right in and engage with a rusher coming off the edge right in front of the quarterback where the rusher could clearly see the guy coming. So it's clearly not a quote-unquote blind side, but it falls perfectly into my belief of what the definition of the rule is here. And I could be wrong about some qualifications here, but I'm going to tell you my research into the rule, and you can tell me if I'm wrong based upon what I'm saying. And I know spirit of the rule, should you – these are, the, these are the, the, the complaints we'll get from people. It's not the spirit of the rule. It's you should use your judgment. You shouldn't call it in that circumstance. Guess what? I want the refs applying a black and white, which is a fairly black and white rule, which this is, as you'll see when I describe it. I want them applying it in a black and white manner. The more discretion you give to refs, the more difficult it becomes. Yeah, refs have a lot of discretion in pass interference because it's not nearly as black and white as it is in this circumstance. So let me read to you what the rule says. It's, I, I do like some of these rules. They're very short text. I like that they're not too complicated here. So the quote-unquote blindside block, according to the NFL rulebook here, Article 7, is, it says, it is a foul if a player initiates a block when his path is toward or parallel to his own end line and makes forcible contact to his opponent with his helmet, 
his forearm, or his shoulder. So let me translate a little bit of this here. If you had, let's say you had a 360-degree dial, and you put it so that the zero on the dial was facing towards the the left sideline if you're on the offense, and the 180 on the dial is facing towards the right sideline, when you initiate your block, if you're initiating with your helmet, your forearm, or your shoulder, you can do that as long as you're somewhere between zero and 180. In other words, if you're somewhere facing forward towards the opponent's end zone, you can initiate those blocks. If, if, you're initiating it, if you're initiating the block even a little bit sideways and backwards, anywhere between the, the, the 180 and the zero in the other direction, right? Anywhere or the, or between the 180, I should say, and the 360 in the other direction, that qualifies as a blindside block according to this rule. So it's it's the direction of the player when they initiate the block. It's not whether or not a person is actually being blindsided. It's going backwards. It's it's these backwards blocks. So anything that's even to the slight degree backwards, they're trying to take out of the game because quite often there were players being hit in the chest by these backwards blocks where they wouldn't have technically been a blindside block before, but because of the surprise nature of them to a degree, uh, players are suffering concussions quite often on this. So that's why they changed the rule. Really poor naming though, still calling it a blindside block. And that is what is confusing a lot of people on that rule. Now, what you might say is, well, what about trap? What about trap blocking where a guy comes over and hits someone and they're basically going parallel to the line of scrimmage, which would be technically illegal according to this? Well, there is a carve out for this and the carve out is what they call a close line play. So the close line play, it's almost like a box you can draw and you could say within that box, there is no blindside block. And the box is between the tackles and extends three yards past the line of scrimmage and three yards behind the line of scrimmage. In, within that box, so often when you see these trap plays where a player comes over and, and hits someone in a manner which may be parallel to the, to, the, to the side, I mean, may be parallel to the line of scrimmage, that's within three yards. That's within three yards back. It's only maybe a yard or two back at most. So those are okay. Those are qualified. Now, this block that was made in this game, it was right next to Taysom Hill when he was in the shotgun. So it was, I don't know, five, six yards back. So it was clearly outside of it. So according to what I read here, it was a clear black and white blindside block, correct call. I understand why people were confused because of the naming, but everyone's saying it's the worst call they've ever seen in their life, I think is 100% incorrect on this. And the fact that the call was made late which was, I believe, what Joe Buck said on the broadcast. The fact that the call was made late makes me believe that this might have been even a sky judge situation where they called them in. They said, hey, hey, that was a blindside block, guys. Put the flag down. We were trying to legislate these out of the game. Um, so they might even be getting confirmation on that. Now, the problem seems to be that there wasn't good communication to Sean Payton from what he's saying, from what actually happened. Obviously, Troy and Joe in the booth had no idea about this. So they, you know, called it an awful call. And then you had a billion people on Twitter complaining about it. And let me just say, there's no cheaper retweet when it comes to Twitter than complaining about the refs during an island game. It's almost a guarantee to get those retweet numbers up, to get that engagement up, get that hashtag engagement up. Um, 
so everyone's doing that. Everyone's, you know, patting each other on the back about how incensed they are about it. It's kind of like these taunting calls when people go nuts with those sorts of things. But in my opinion, this was not a referee problem. Maybe it's a rule problem. Maybe they should change that rule. Maybe they should extend more than three yards back. Maybe it should extend all the way back to 10 yards. So you can always do that behind the line of scrimmage in that tackle box area. But guess what? That's the rule. So we have to know the rules first so we can know what to complain about. And let's not complain about the refs needing to show discretion here. Let's complain about the people on the competition committee. Like Sean Payton was on the competition committee when they changed this rule. Let's complain about those people making poor rules. And I think this comes to taunting also. Let's complain about those people making poor rules before we complain as much about the refs who are trying to do, in my opinion, what is a difficult job. Okay, let's talk now about this article that Eric Eager wrote here. But before we get to that, I'm going to hit some of my sponsorships here. First, you should know, if you want to get access to this article from Eric uh, and any other great PFF research, I got a bunch of DFS stuff that I put up there, showdown game for the Island Game Contest, other research that we do from our research and development team, some of the best people out there, MVP odds from Timo Risque, everything else there, Cyber40, 40% 40% off any sub, the best promotion you could possibly get at PFF. Make sure you use it, use it, use it. Uh, the next sponsor is Manscaped. Manscaped just launches new products, including their all-new ultra-premium body wash and two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. It's time to give yourself or someone who needs it the gift of beautiful skin, hair, and balls. You heard me, balls, this holiday season. Go to manscaped.com and use code PFF for 20% off and free shipping. Inside the Performance Package 4.0, you'll find the signature Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer has proprietary advanced skin safe technology to reduce cuts on your nuts. That's right, cuts on your nuts. It's also waterproof, so you can use it in the shower. They also, there's a lot of also's here, launched their new 2.1, 2 and 1. Shampoo and conditioner, which has key ingredients with benefits that include hydrating, nourishing, conditioning the scalp, strengthening your hair at the same time. Tis the season to load up on Manscaped product. So gift yourself, your dad, your brother, and your friends the best gift of all, Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with promo code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code PFF. Clean up your nuts and make Santa proud this year. That's right. Santa will be proud of your nuts. Okay, let's get into the next thing here. And again, Eric Eager's article. For those who have not read it, pff.com, I am going to make sure I have the right thing here. The article is called The Value of Perfectly Blocked Runs and Passes. So for those of you who are not too online like I am, it was shared quite a bit, and the engagement was good because we got weighing in from some NFL players, in particular Mitchell Schwartz, the awesome former right tackle from the Chiefs and the Browns before that, extremely high, highly graded PFF guy, who is also a very thoughtful and analytic, uh, ooh, almost messed up, totally messed it up there, analytically inclined, easy for me to say, uh, player. So let, let me get first things first, let's talk about the article. And let's talk about the framing of what Eric tweeted out the article. And when he, so when he tweeted this out, and this is a study on how 
blocking and how successful teams are blocking affects efficiency for run plays versus pass plays. But when he sent it out, his framing for it, and I think some of the framing in the article, was this helps explain why coaches may be overly reliant upon the run game because in a broad sense, what the article says is a perfectly blocked run play is more efficient than a perfectly blocked pass play. It's just perfectly blocked run plays are much more difficult. They only happen a third of the time versus perfectly blocked pass plays happen two thirds of the time. And a run play that's not perfectly blocked is much worse than a pass play that is not perfectly blocked. So that's the overarching thing. So the theme from Eric here, and the reason there became this engagement with Mitchell Schwartz was he said, I think I'm, I understand why coaches are over-reliant on the run. And his suspicion would be, they think if you have the correct execution, and we've heard coaches talk about execution over and over again, that's their favorite post-game presser commentary. They won because they executed. They lost because they didn't execute. So if you execute a run play perfectly, if all of the blocks are good blocks, if we we say there are no missed blocks on the play, you get about 0.22 EPA per play, which is as strong, stronger than any offense in the NFL. If you could perfectly execute your run block on every single play, you would have the best offense in the NFL. You wouldn't have the downside of interceptions. You wouldn't even have the downside of incompletions because you'd probably be, even in circumstances where you're not being successful, you're probably still picking up one, two yards, something like that. So you'd have the best offense in the NFL. Problem is, it only happens about a third of the time. So the thought would be, coaches are chasing after this. If we could just execute better, if we could just execute better, if we could just do it a little bit better. And on a short sample, in a single game, maybe you can get that number to 60, 70, 80%. And then you say, we did it. Look at this. Look how great this offense was. Let's do that again next week. But the problem is you're chasing. You're chasing a base rate, which is much lower. And again, no matter how good any team is, you're always going to be dragged down towards the evidence that we've seen in the past. This is the the psychology part of it then. The psychology that coaches maybe are a little bit wrong about the lack of efficiency. They're they're seeing this upside for the for run plays with perfection that they're not able to properly digest all of the different probabilities, the lack of no matter how well they try to execute, no matter how good their players are, they're just not going to get to a high enough execution level to make it sustainably a good way to go. That's his thought for why they do it. It's similar in a way to an earlier thought where you don't have as good of data here. There's an earlier thought by, I believe, Brian Burke, and you know everything goes back to Brian Burke. Or if you want to say everything goes back to Virgil Carter, who originally wrote um, The Hidden Game of Football, which I don't have a copy near me, but I do have that. That's like the OG text for football analytics. But anyway, going back to, to Brian Burke, I'm pretty sure he postulated first, as he did quite often on his advanced football analytics blog, that because the success rates are similar between running and passing, that's what motivated coaches to do running more often than they should because they're seeing those success rates and they feel as successful as often on those plays, despite the fact that there's lower upside on those plays. So from an efficiency standpoint, 
if you're going to take the total efficiency and divide it by the number of plays, you're going to be much better passing than running because you're not going to have 20, 30, 40-yard plays very often at all running the ball. Or even 15-yard plays, even 10-yard plays running the ball, not nearly as often. But you will be successful about as often. So it was the inability of coaches to parse that out. So this is building on that, I would say, for Eric, but probably even building in a, in a, in a more advanced way to really point to this execution thing that coaches rely upon so much. Now, when Mitchell Schwartz responds to this, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit with what he says in his response, but he says to Eric's thought that why, you know, he says, I think Eric's saying, I think I know why coaches do what they're doing with running the game. And Mitch says in in a thoughtful way that he's as analytically minded as anyone, but this is not the answer. He says, football distills down to simple tenets for coaches and players. Toughness, physicality, discipline. Success in the run game is the ultimate indicator for those principles. And then he goes on to say that, you know, football is controlled violence, and this taps into it. The running game taps into that. And imposing your physical will on someone and the feelings that come from that, the mental attitude that comes from that. You can't quantify that mental attitude, and that mental attitude can bleed out to the rest of the game. So he really has two different points here. One, disputing the rationale, saying, no, coaches are not doing it because they're confused about the efficiency, or they're chasing this efficiency of a perfectly executed run game. It's because they're focused on this physicality and domination and the mental aspect of the game in that way. So he has that point which I will address. I'm going to address the second point first, which is he does get into this other thing of, you know, we can't measure feelings and the impact that these things have, the the major mental impact. He says specifically, these have ramifications that can affect everything else on the football field. So presumably, if you have this positive mental impact from running the ball well, that positivity will translate into other aspects of the game. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address the second point first. And I think the second point is probably not as important as the first point because the first point is directly talking about the article. But I'm going to address the second point because the second point is a very common thing, whether we talk about body blows, whether we talk about, you know, a rhythm in the run game, whether we talk about momentum that happens, all of these different things. The feelings, the positive mental is, um, impact which is undoubtedly real, that there is a positive mental difference going on from players. Like you probably feel better, especially as an offensive lineman, after a well-executed, good running play than you do after a well-executed pass play where you feel like, I'm lucky I survived without giving up this sack. That is, that is something that's happening. And it is also something you cannot measure. You cannot get in someone's head, right? But what you can do is, if you're going to postulate that, that X leads to mental positive mental state which leads to y which you know in this case it would be x being successful running leads to positive mental state which leads to better success in other aspects of the game including running the ball going forward y well you can't measure the the middle part you can't measure the mental impact directly you can measure x and you can measure y and if X leads directly to Y, which leads, I mean, which, sorry, which leads directly to the mental impact, which leads directly to Y, then you can measure those two things. And the thing is, 
we have done that. So to say you can't measure momentum, you can't measure positive feelings is not really a way to toss aside the ability to study these things. You still can study these things. You study X and you study Y. And you assume and you talk to people like what's co- what are the type of plays that would be causing this mental feeling. So for instance, for momentum, you could say, let's study turnovers. Turnovers are very often talk about momentum. Let's study blocked punts. Let's study kick return touchdowns. Uh, something where they often talk about momentum swings. Let's talk, let's study two quick touchdowns that happen in rapid succession. And so you study that, which is, so you, you, you take those plays, which is supposed to lead to momentum. And then you study, okay, after those things happen, and this has been done, study has been done on this. After those things happen, does the team have any sort of short or long-term positive effect above what you would expect from them going forward? And we don't find evidence of that. So and again, it comes to body blows, it comes to establishing the run, it comes to all those things. We don't find evidence of that in these circumstances. And that isn't to say that the, the mental feelings, the feeling of momentum, the feeling of physical dominance, the feeling of physicality, it's not to say that those feelings don't exist. And it's not to say even that those feelings have no impact. What it's saying is, they probably do not have a measurable impact. And if you don't have a measurable, measurable impact, even if you believe something, even if you feel something, if there's not a measurable impact, then you probably don't want to base your strategy upon believing that it has a huge impact. It might have a bigger impact than we're able to measure. But to assume that it has a big enough impact in the case of the running game to give up efficiency in order to do it to think that you're going to make up that efficiency differential by running more often, you're going to make up that efficiency differential because of this thing that we can't measure. If we can't see any evidence, you're just going to, it's just better for you strategically to assume that it's, it's lower than we think and you probably want to give it less weight to minimal weight in your decision making. Okay, so that's part two. We can, you, we can always discount this. You can't measure it, so therefore, nerds, you know, don't talk to us. That's, that's that sort of thing. Although I'm not saying Mitch is being dismissive like that. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have made Mitch sound like that because he's not. He's a, he, like I said, he's a very thoughtful dude. Now, the second part of this. Second part of this, I think it's, and again, just to, just to remind people, the second part of this was the reason that they're running is, is not because of the efficiency, their, their perceptions of efficiency being off, but because of toughness, physicality, discipline. So I just think it's not binary. That would be my first thing. No one is 100% doing it because of physicality or 100% doing it because of efficiency, what they think of efficiency. I think it's a blend. I don't think you can discount what Eric is saying, but I, I don't think you can discount what Mitch is saying either about the physicality. And I think a good way to prove this is to, is to look at logical extremes. Sometimes it's good to look at these extreme situations in order to prove something. So let's assume Mitch is correct, and it's 100% about toughness, physicality, and discipline. Okay, if that were the case, and it doesn't have to do with a misperception of value at all, let's look at a logical extreme and let's say if, they, if a team was focused and they're running because they want toughness, because they want physicality, why wouldn't first play of the game, first down and 10 from their own 25, why wouldn't they just line up in goal line formation 
and pound it in there. Bring in a couple tight ends, uh, maybe even bring in uh, a six offensive lineman, bring in a fullback, be tough. Maximize that physicality. Why are teams, would team never do that? Well, a team would never do that because they know that the efficiency they're going to get from that play is not worth it. It's not worth the maxing out of physicality. So by looking at that logical extreme, then we can kind of prove to ourselves, we can logically prove to ourselves that there is a trade-off between efficiency and physicality. Now, lots of teams run outside zone runs. Those runs are not the most physical runs. They're not imposing their physical will on teams, the offensive linemen, nearly as much. You can be much lighter uh, on those types of runs. It's about movement. So, but they can also be a little bit more juice you can get out of the out of the the run in terms of efficiency. So again, it's a it's a given and it's, and it's a take. So the coaches could be primarily concerned with physicality, and at the same time, I do think the misperception that Eric is bringing up in this article can be important in the decision making because the decision making is not just about physicality. It's not just about efficiency. It's about both. So if they have a misperception on efficiency, which I think Eric is capturing well as a potential blind spot for coaches in this article. If they have that, then that is important in helping figure out why they run more often, even if it isn't the dominant or the main way, even if Mitchell Schwartz is correct, that the main reason is physicality. Because every play, there are trade-offs. There's never, you go for physicality or not, you're always trading things off. And if you think your opportunity cost is lower than it actually is, because of a misperception of of the value of running, then you're going to be more willing to run. Than if than if you knew what the opportunity cost was. Okay, that is my very long spiel. I think I think it's pretty good, quite honestly. I think I'll help you understand this more than anything, and you can apply it to other things in football. Before we get to my best bets for the rest of the week, let's talk very appropriately about DraftKings. So DraftKings is a sponsor of Unexpected Points. Right now, you can. Oh, sorry, I'm doing the wrong thing. Um, Football fans, I'm sure we all love an action-packed, high-scoring NFL game, but with the latest no-brainer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, you can be a winner once a single point is scored. New customers bet just $1 and win $100 in free bets if a single point is scored. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state, you can still get in on the NFL action, daily fantasy, sports contests, huge cash prizes, a free shot at a million dollars in total prizes with your first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code PFF, bet $1 on any team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score with promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner of the NFL must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit, $1 wagered, one per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And lastly, Western and Southern. Whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? Or how about a need to know for your financial future? Now you can ask about either or both. And every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. 
Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching on YouTube, check the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Okay, best bets. Let's look it up. Uh, the numbers I ran earlier were not fantastic, I have to say. The numbers actually favored the Saints a little bit. Luckily, I did not bet that. even went up to six and a half because Taysom Hill stinks. Sorry, Taysom, I know you're on a $40 million contract or whatever's going on there, but I had to fade you. So again, the numbers are not great here, but we got a little something. Two and a half. If you can get Buffalo minus two and a half, you guys knew this was coming. You, you, you know, I'm a Pats hater. My numbers don't like the Pats that much. If you can get this at two and a half, which I believe is available in most places. Now, it's, it's, it's floated between two and a half and three. So at the, when I updated these numbers this morning, it was, I was still getting two and a half. Um, yeah, there is two and a half available. Although it looks like two and a half is minus 115 now, minus 112. So minus 112 is not bad at FanDuel. That's like barely anything. So I would get that. Minus two and a half, Bills at home against the Patriots. Again, this is one of these scores that you never would have suspected. I went over all the stuff earlier this week about how the Patriots are superficially good. They superficially have the biggest point differential in the NFL, although they've played one more game. So even on a per-game basis, the Bills are better there. And according to my adjusted scores, they've been much, much better this season, though the Patriots have been on a little bit of a run here. We saw, it's, what, what's interesting is this was a game that, even the look ahead was much higher. I think it was three and a half, four points, which is a significant difference, right? Going from three and a half to two and a half. It was much higher. And if you look at what happened last week, yeah, the Patriots blew out the Titans, but it was a six point game midway through the third quarter after the Titans had fumbled twice and missed a field goal. So it could have been like a tie game at that point against the Titans, who are really not that good right now. No AJ Brown, no Julio Jones. You had, um, random dudes out there running routes, Cody Hollister running routes out there. So you have that at home that the Patriots win. They seem to get more of a boost from that performance, which was not that great of a performance according to my adjusted numbers. They seem to get a bigger boost from that performance than the Buffalo Bills did in completely trashing the Saints in New Orleans. And the Saints are a good team. They smoked them, according to my adjusted numbers, in that game. So very strange. Like, if anything, the reaction from last week should have been, okay, the Bills team, best defense in the NFL. By the numbers, Josh Allen, second place runner-up in the MVP conversation. They're looking back on tracking. It's a very tough New Orleans defense. I mean, look what the Saints defense just did to Dallas last night, even though the Saints offense was giving them the ball over and over again. Like, the reaction from that should have been more positive towards Buffalo vis-a-vis New England but it wasn't to win on the road against a better team, a much better team in a much more dominant fashion. But anyway, everyone loves the Patriots and they'll probably own me again this week. But that is one that I have here. And it's, it's getting a little rough to find another one. So these are not really best bets. I think I'm going to call that one my only best bet, unfortunately, here. I do have a couple leans that I will mention if anyone is interested. The Jets plus seven at, I'm sorry, at home versus the Philadelphia Eagles. Just a lot of points for the Eagles, who have been a great running team. And you know I love Jalen Hurts, 
but it's a lot of points for a low upside team here. It looks like it was six and a half. There's still some six and a halves out there. So make sure you get that seven. Um, plus seven, it looks like it's minus 114 now is the best you can get at FanDuel. So one, it's minus 115 most places. So if you can lock that in though, the fan, uh, the FanDuel, if you want to bet that one. That's a lean for me. Um, again, Philly, you know, I love you, but success rate has been pretty low for that offensively. They've been relying upon these big plays in the running game where that running game could definitely continue in this one. Um, and I love Jalen Hurts. So again, that's why it's just a lean for me on this one. Uh, a slight lean towards the Cincinnati Bengals over the Los Angeles Chargers. The Bengals are at home. The Chargers have been struggling. The Bengals have been doing really well success rate wise and their ability to run the ball. Again, it's a matchup sort of issue here. The Chargers defense cannot stop anything on the run. And the Bengals offense has been very, very good recently when they've been able to um, run the ball and then use Burrow in a more sparing manner. It looks like the plus three here. I'm sorry, not the plus three. It looks like the minus three is also 115, minus 115 in most places. Still minus 110 at FanDuel. So maybe go there for this one. But it's starting to lean even further towards the Bengals. So that's the directionality on, on this one here. So that's another one. The next one I have here. Oh, geez. I don't know. The Texans plus 10 at home against the Colts. God, it's a hard one. But, you know, Tyrod shows up like every other week. So I don't know. That's a rough one, though. Let's look at where if you can actually get like maybe a 10 and a half or something, I'd feel a lot better. Ooh, here we go. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was looking at the wrong one. I'm looking at the Falcons. So uh, take that ooh back. Um, no, it looks like you can't get anything better than 10. It's actually moved down to nine at points bet. So maybe 10 is not bad to grab. It's also nine and a half at DraftKings. So it looks like 10 might be a little bit of value. I, I do like, it's, from a betting perspective, I think from another thing you should always think about is it's nice when you're picking off something where there's a disagreement in value and you're getting potentially a little bit of closing line value just if everything reverts back in the direction towards your bet, right? If everything reverts back, if you're able to pick off this, let's say 10 plus 10 for Houston, and while there's 10 and nine and a half and nine out there right now, you know, maybe everything will settle at 10. Maybe things will even settle at 10 and a half and you'll be wrong. But I think you're more, at least you have a better chance at this point of things maybe settling at nine and a half or nine and getting some closing line value there. So I think that's very important if you believe in efficient markets, which which I do here. And Seattle, again, plus three and a half at home against the Niners. I kind of like that one, even though I've just been dying with Russ uh, against Green Bay and against Washington, where they've looked so, so, so bad. But that's another one I have a lean on. And that's basically it. Uh, the last one is the actually the Vegas Raiders at home against Washington, one and a half points. It's kind of a weird one when Vegas looked so much better earlier this year. Washington looked so bad. Now Washington's moved up in everyone's mind. One and a half is kind of close to a, a pick em, if anything, at home for the Raiders. But you don't really know for the Raiders whether that offense, offensive explosion they had last week, the DPIs that they drew against the uh, Cowboys, Sean Jackson, can he stay healthy for another week, providing that Henry Ruggs roll down the field? Will that continue against Washington? I don't know, but I know that Washington gives up a ton of big plays on defense, at least they did earlier this year, and they haven't been getting a ton of pressure. And Max Crosby is still getting a lot of pressure for the Raiders' defense. They just need to be a little bit better on the back end and force some turnovers. And 
you know, Heineke will give you some turnovers. So I, I, I do like that one. Uh, Vegas Raiders minus one and a half. So here's the ones I'm going to make for my best bets. Let me, let me restate it here. Buffalo minus two and a half. Vegas minus one and a half. And I think that's, I think that's it. Um, yeah, I think that's it. So those two are going to be my best bets for, for this week. God, I'm very tempted by Cincinnati. Oh, what the hell? Cincinnati also. So Cincinnati, make sure you get minus three. Buffalo, make sure you get minus two and a half. And Vegas, Washington, one and a half. And let me check to make sure that is still available. Yeah, it's one and a half everywhere. So you're not really getting any extra juice on that one, unfortunately. But I like uh, I like the Raiders in this one. Okay, everybody, thanks for sitting through with me. Hopefully, uh, at least the middle part here was educational to you. I'll be back at you on, on Tuesday with all of the adjusted scores and everything else. Rate, review the pod, leave uh, positive reviews. Hit me up on Twitter, at Kevin Cole, PFF. Otherwise, I'll be talking with you next week. Thanks so much.